We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. This is what I like to do on a Monday, okay? You mentioned okay. it was fun to watch NFL Sunday and know you had this show to come on. So I want to give you a blank slate Blank canvas. I have no idea what you're going to say. I just want to know. It could be from the whole weekend, but specifically yesterday, Sunday football in the NFL. What do you think was the single biggest storyline, your biggest takeaway? If we could only talk about one thing on today's show, what would it be in your mind? For me, it's the quality of play overall. And the true apparent excellence of the 49ers last night, because uh, I think Cowboys Patriots will obviously get a lot of conversation today around the around the around the country and with you and I. But that confirmed a lot of stuff. I think we probably already knew last night. The Niners looked so good. That defense is so real. And maybe the Packers and Packers fans will say that they're the ones who who had the uh, the disastrous showing, but I thought it was the Niners dominating from front to back uh, with Jimmy Ward at the safety and then Bosa and Armstead and everybody up front. All those guys have a lot of sacks and we're putting pressure on Rodgers. And it's just that defense is playing with a collective fervor and an edge with Richard Sherman out there. It's, it's easy for me to go to the Legion of Boom to go to those Vic Fangio defenses in San Francisco, which who battled the Legion of Boom at their peak. But I watch that Niners defense and I see a bunch of dogs just feeding off of each other and playing with a frenzy that you have to be nearly perfect to beat, you know? And, and the only time Aaron Rodgers got close to beating it was when they either dialed up a perfect play and or he extended a play and then made a great deep throw uh, after af- after forcing you know defenders to have to cover multiple moves, and he almost did it. He's almost good enough to score some points against that defense. But my God, they're playing so well. And then Kyle Shanahan knows how to design an offense. So I-, I-, I guess it's the quality of the Niners, and maybe it's also in comparison to the Bears and Giants, which I hope we talk very little about today. All right. So you're <laughs> out there in Chicago. So you obviously yeah, watch the Bears and the Giants, and so. Your big takeaway was watching the Niners compared to the Bears and Giants. It's two different games. And for the first half, you could have you throw the Packers in there in terms of the quality of defense they were playing. There were back-to-back possessions. It was like third and 35 from the 10, and then third and 30 from the 10 for the other team um, because that, that Packers defense has, has been playing pretty well at times. But, yeah, the Bears and the Giants was just a horrific football game. They, they took turns giving the other team chances to win. You win. No, you win. Please, you know you win. And finally, the Bears were like, okay, we'll win. Um, and, you know, it was a one-possession game at the end, and the Bears just had so many chances. Trubisky threw a couple interceptions. One of them 
maybe his worst throw of the year, just a throw to straightaway center field that was eight yards underthrown for Javon Wims. Um, even when they look decent, the Bears, it's so obvious that they're broken. And the Cowboys are, are the 30th ranked scoring defense, 24th ranked yardage defense, and the Bears mustered over 300 yards for the first time. Yay. Yay. But it, it was just it was just really bad, ugly football. Um, and then you watch the Niners and the Packers. And by now we know who the good teams are. Right. And to watch the good teams play after watching the really bad teams play. It's just it's almost two different sports, Ross. So I want to start with the Niners part of it. And I want to get into what stood out to me yesterday, uh, because, boy, there's one thing that trumps everything else in my mind. And it is significant and it is not good for the NFL. We'll get to that momentarily because that was my big takeaway. But for the Niners, I got to tell you, Matt, I don't really have a rooting interest. You know, I do Eagles pregame for WIP, which is a radio.com affiliate, and I do their preseason television. I grew up an Eagles fan, so it's nice when they do well just working with them, for them, whatever. But I got to tell you, I would like to adopt the 49ers. (laughs) I love the 49ers. Their defensive line, I mean, their whole defense was just flying around. Specifically, their D-line, Nick Bosa, DeForest Buckner, Eric Armstead. We know about those guys. You know, all those guys, first-round picks. And uh, most of the time, that's where you have to get stud D-linemen. It's like stud D linemen are found in the first round because there's only so many of them. They're so valuable. I still think it's the second most important position in the sport after quarterback and their D linemen are awesome. But how about this other guy, DJ Jones? I never even really heard of this guy until this year. And he's out there killing Corey Lindsley, killing the Packers. Um, You know, it's funny. I was thinking about what did last night's game say more about the Niners or more about the Packers. I really think it is about the Niners. I I really think they are that good. They started to get the run game going a little bit. George Kittle is the best tight end in the NFL in my mind. Excellent run after the catch and blocker. And Debo Samuel, their rookie receiver, such a stud with the ball in his hands after he catches as well. Look, I do power rankings every Tuesday, Matt. I think that the Niners are legit. I think they and the Baltimore Ravens are the two best teams in football. I would not Hmm. be surprised if it's a rematch of that Super Bowl at the end of the 2012 season. They actually play each other next Sunday, which is epic because I think they're the two best teams in football. And frankly, and we'll talk later on in the show, we're going to have Rob Long, who's on our Baltimore affiliate. But I, I think the Ravens, are going to do the same thing to the Rams tonight that the Niners did to the Packers last. I think those teams are just that good. But that was that was fun to watch the 49ers. Now, they might have fair weather fans. We can get into that because like the stadium was half full last year. But now that they're good, those people are going crazy. It just it felt like the Niners were playing at a different speed. My concern is the quarterback. This is the guy that we've tied everything into. And if you look at his whole body of work, yes, the 10 games are included. The stats don't lie. I Don't tell me he's got 
quarterback. And that might be being kind. And I know it's harsh right now because of the last week. But his body of work shows he's an average quarterback. That's it. It's really hard to accept, but it's hard to say otherwise today. Great call as always, John. No, I'm I'm at that point right now where I'm reassessing what I think he can be because what he was yesterday, he was Bobby Hoy. He oh was God, Kevin. Don't say that. He was Kevin Cobb. Oh no, those guys were terrible under pressure. Those guys couldn't make the simplest throws, right. and we all mocked them. Well, guess what? Our franchise quarterback was them. WIP in Philadelphia. It was a caller. And then Angelo Cataldi, the legendary morning talk show host. It was stunning, uh, to say the least, Matt. And the guy that was there and is there for every day of Eagles football, training camp, practices. At any time the Eagles are available, Elliot Shore Parks is there. Encourage you to check him out on Twitter, at Elliot Shore Parks. Elliot, appreciate the time. Nice hoodie. I'm usually used to seeing you in a suit and tie. I like the hoodie. Uh, very you, comfortable. You. That thank that you. fits our uh, that definitely fits our theme here on Home and Home. Since all three of us, well, actually Matt's in the studio, but we're in our homes. It's Ross Tucker, Matt Spiegel. So I, I, I guess I'll start with this, Elliot. Was that the worst game Carson's played? Yeah, I mean, look, he he had a rough game last year in New Orleans when they lost by 41 points, I think. But in just in terms of accuracy, decision making, and the fact that that game was there to be won, like as poorly as Carson played, the defense kept him in it, and at the end of the game, he had a chance to lead them down the field for a potential tie or even a win late. I mean, he had a, a really bad interception in the fourth quarter that you know helped to seal that game for the Seahawks, and he had a play that I think right now really shows where he's at. It was a key fourth down late in the game. He drops back. J.J. Arcega-Whiteside is wide open. Carson sees him, pulls it back, then decides to throw it and delivers an inaccurate pass. So he's just a complete mess right now. It's hard to reconcile this particular Carson Wentz with the guy who had 33 touchdowns and seven interceptions before the injury in, in 2017. He looked really rattled out there. That the the yeah. play you mentioned, the fumble on the on the handoff exchange as one of the four turnovers, that looked like a guy in terror. He's got no right tackle, or he's got a backup right tackle right now. He's got he's down three wide receivers in terms of injury and 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 a running back too. How much uh, was he rattled? How much do you put on his emotions or lack of poise yesterday, Elliot? Look, a lot's happened to Carson in his career, right? And it's understandable why there, he would feel pressure each week. I mean, there's still a statue of Nick Foles outside of the stadium. So there is pressure on him. But I think sometimes to say that he's, like, rattled or feels pressured, like, moves the goalpost kind of from what his real issues are is just he's not an accurate passer. Like, that is the core of Carson's problems. He cannot throw an accurate ball. And a pass in a league with 32 teams, he's 34th in the league in on-target throws. So there's some backups that have come in this year and been better in terms of their accuracy. I think his decision-making at times is an issue. And I think one thing you hear Doug Peterson say a lot is Carson's pressing out there. He's trying to do too much. And you see that at times with him pulling it down, not taking checkdowns and those type of things. But the issue is is not mental in terms of pressure. The issue with Carson right now is physical skill. Like, he is not an accurate passer, and it all starts with that. 
Okay, so to follow up, because I watch Mitch Trubisky, and he lacks the poise. I see his supercomputer mm-hmm. not doing its job. That's not what you see with Carson. You don't see a guy who's trying to process too much. You see a guy who physically is not getting it done. Uh, I think overall, I don't see that with Carson. He did it yesterday against the Seahawks and somewhat against the Patriots two weeks ago. But on a larger scale, no. I I don't think that's going to be an issue with Carson. Carson knows football. He's really good before the snap. His issue is more just, you know, he he can sometimes be hesitant in the pocket to throw the ball. And I I don't think that's – I don't think it's because he doesn't know what he's looking at. I think it's a desire to make bigger plays. But I I don't think it's a Trubisky level yet uh, with Carson. (laughs) You know, Elliot, I am really glad that you mentioned that fourth down throw to J.J. Ortega-Whiteside because that was horrendous. He was open and went double clutch like he does sometimes and then not just off his back foot, but like leaning back off his back foot, he tried to just snap it in there and was inaccurate. I thought that throw was a microcosm of his issues. And part of me thought early in the game, Elliot, when he was missing like the running backs, and he was way off. Part of me thought, man, the wind must be a big factor. Yeah. But Russell Wilson was making some incredible throws right around the same time. Now, Russell Wilson missed a wide open dude later in the in the first half for a touchdown in the end zone. Hollister, where he floated the ball too long while he was running. But Russell Wilson had a bunch of really good throws down the sideline, deep posts, etc. Whereas Wentz, you know, he would it, it, he was missing the layups. He he misses yeah. some of the easy throws that it's just really those are so hard to come back from if you don't make the layups. And I, I think that's probably his biggest issue right now. Yeah, look, last week I went back and I watched every throw Carson's made this year, and and I tallied them. And I came up with right around 50 throws this season that are similar to the Miles Sanders one you you just mentioned, where for those that missed the game yesterday, Miles Sanders wide open in the flat, could, could not be more wide open. Carson sails at four or five yards over his head. There's been four or five throws each game this season where that's happened. And sometimes they don't get noticed as much because people like to focus on the drops um, and those type of things and the injuries. But the fact is, like, the numbers don't lie. Carson's not an accurate quarterback, and that's it, it showed yesterday. Now, yesterday was probably his worst game, as we already talked about, so there were a lot more examples. But this has been an issue for Carson throughout the season. When you ask, why are the Eagles 5-6? and six? Like, why have they not met these Super Bowl expectations? The number one reason is Carson. Like, the, the injuries are a factor, but the number one reason is the quarterback is not playing up to his level and when you draft a guy number two overall and you pay him all that money, he should be expected to carry you. And Carson's not only not carrying this team right now, he's actively hurting their chances of winning. Well, and that's kind of what I don't understand, Elliot. Talking with Elliot Shore Parks from 94-1 WIP in Philadelphia. What I don't understand is he's getting worse this season. Like mm-hmm. earlier in the year, I actually thought he was playing pretty darn well. And especially without Deshaun Jackson, I thought he was playing well. And I know, look, they didn't have any of their three starting receivers yesterday. The right side of the offensive line is a mess. I get all those things. But he still needs to not throw the ball behind Zach Ertz on a key third down or put the ball on the running back so they at least have a chance. I guess I don't understand 
why he's regressing during this season. You'd think coming off the injury, he would actually be getting better during this season, but he's pretty clearly getting worse, right? Well, so I, I personally don't think he was playing as well as you do early on in the year. Like, there were a lot of examples of him making really good plays, but, I mean, against the Falcons, everyone says, you know, they lost that game because of Nelson Aguilar. He had a drop in that game. Carson was atrocious for the first half. And when you talk about Carson's career, it's an interesting one to dissect because so much has happened. Nick Foles comes in, leads leads Carson's team to the Super Bowl. He tears his ACL, breaks his back. All these things happen to him. But now when you look at him, 51 games into his career, I think that what we expect from Carson is maybe not what he is. He was great in 2017. So when you look at him these past two years, you say, okay, he hasn't been that guy. But maybe that was just an outlier. And maybe that was just a result of him playing great against really bad teams a lot of weeks in a row. Because since the start of 2018, the Eagles are 10-12 and 12 with Carson at quarterback. He's not played well. This isn't like a three- or four-week thing with Carson. This is a 22-game thing with Carson. And he's suffered injuries. So maybe the injuries have just taken it out of him. We'll see. But he has to make adjustments. And I will say on a larger scale, too— the Eagles hold some responsibility in this. They need to help him out more. They need to not make it so every year he's playing with different receivers. They need to make it so that, honestly, the coaching on this team, and not Doug Peterson, but the quarterback coach, the offensive coordinator, I don't think they're doing anything right now to help Carson. So the Eagles are alive. It's possible they get in the playoffs. Jason Garrett with the Cowboys is certainly doing his best to make sure that happens. So maybe Carson gets playoff experience. But at the end of this year, the Eagles need to take a large look picture at this franchise and decide how are we going to help Carson? Because there is no question of whether Carson's a guy. Carson is this guy, whether he's good or not. They're committed to him for two or three years because of the massive money they gave him. So they have to figure out how to make Carson win despite his flaws. Elliot, let's listen to Doug Peterson this morning uh, talking about the pressure that's on Carson Wentz. We know that he's struggling. He's on the record saying he is. But we're not totally clear on why. Could you give us a little uh, uh, idea on that? You know, it, I think a little bit after the after the game, I alluded to this a little bit in the press conference. Um, sometimes when when you struggle as an offense and and uh, things aren't going your way, things aren't clicking. Sometimes as players, you begin to kind of press a little bit. You begin to try to go searching for plays and trying to create on your own and. Listen, Carson is he's he's such a great player to he he can he can create on his own. He, we've seen him do that and we understand he can do that, but sometimes when teams are struggling and when you struggle as an offense, you don't have to go searching for a lot of plays. Just just run the offense and just execute the the plays that are that are called and sometimes sometimes you get caught up in in trying to do too much. And I think I think when you put that pressure on yourself uh, to perform um, that that can that can manifest itself, and and um, we just got to get him, you know, back to back to being Carson Wentz, and and just just understanding and you know uh, what we're trying to get done uh, each and every play. Uh, continue to coach, continue to uh, you know work every week, but um, that's that's what we got to do. So that's Doug Peterson on WIP uh, Radio.com affiliate from from this morning. We keep trying to chase down, at least I do, these kind of abstract factors as to why he's gotten bad. And I understand what you're saying, Elliot, that maybe this is just him. But that's mm -hmm. the coach. That's the coach saying it's he's thinking too much. He's trying to do too much. Whereas we watched a guy like Nick Foles just kind of calmly take whatever was there in the offense. Does that part of it make sense, the way Doug talked about it? 
I, I think there's some truth to that. I, I like I said, I, I do think he's trying to make bigger plays when they're not there. I think there there is absolutely some truth to that. But I'll also say the Eagles organization are pet are petrified of criticizing Carson Wentz. Each each week when he struggles or he has a bad play, and Doug's asked about it, Mike Groh is asked about it. They'll say, yeah, Carson wasn't great that play, but you know what? The offensive line has to block. The receivers have to catch. We can do a better job coaching. Like, they have not been willing to point the finger right at Carson, and I think that's what you hear in that answer. This whole Carson Wentz is a great player, and he can create on his own. Well, where has that been for the last year and a half? I mean, there's maybe one play a game where he makes a spectacular play, but that doesn't excuse the fact that for, you know, the other 50 plays in that game, this offense has been terrible. I mean, if it wasn't for Jim Schwartz and the defense, the Eagles would be— a train wreck for the last year. This offense has been bad, and part of that absolutely falls on Carson. Now, you mentioned Nick Foles. One thing the Eagles talked about prior to this year was Carson was getting rid of the ball quickly. He, he knows the offense now. He can get rid of the ball quickly. He can make the quick decision. And part of that is because when Foles came in last year, this isn't even the Super Bowl year. When he came in last year, he had the quickest release time in the NFL from when he came in to when the Eagles lost to the Saints. And the offense clicked at a much higher level. Carson is not only getting, not only not getting rid of the ball quickly, he has his lowest uh, or slowest time to throw average of his career this year. So he's been a disaster in that regard. You know, Elliot, let's let's kind of put a button on the Carson Wentz part of it, and then I got one more question for you. But long term, on a scale of one to ten, what would you say your level of concern is? with Carson Wentz as the franchise quarterback for the Eagles, 10 being very concerned, one being not concerned at all? I would say I'm somewhere between a 7 and an 8, just because when you have a fundamental flaw in your game of being an inaccurate passer, I have a hard time believing that after a full college career of struggling with it, four years in the NFL of struggling with it, that that's going to change. Carson can make special plays. I believe in Carson Wentz, the person. He's a hard worker. Uh, I believe he knows the game of football. But if you can't throw an accurate pass, you can't succeed long-term in this league. You just can't. So until I see that change, my level of concern with Carson is pretty high. All right. And then my other question is, you know, the Cowboys lost again. So the Eagles now play the Giants twice, the Redskins, the Dolphins. And, yes, they play. They host the Dallas Cowboys. Everything we just said. Do you still think that they're going to end up winning this division? I mean, man, each week I say the answer is no, and then Jason Garrett and the Cowboys do something that makes me think they have a chance. Look, (laughs) if the Eagles play the way they did yesterday, they will not beat the Miami Dolphins. They will not beat the Giants. Like, the Eagles, take away the outside factors. The Eagles are playing bad football right now. And under Doug and Carson, they've only won three games in a row twice in four years. So this idea that they're definitely going to win the next three games, I think, is a stretch. I think there's a very good chance they lose one of the next two. But the Cowboys could lose to the Bills. They could lose to the Rams. So it's hard to say. I think it's truly 50-50 right now. Uh, but neither of these teams deserves to be in the playoffs. I mean, that, that much we know. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. 
Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. We need to talk, Matt, about the biggest thing that stood out to me yesterday. And there's a lot of things we could talk about, right? We could talk about weather. And the fact that I believe weather is one of the things that makes football so much better than the other sports. Seeing the rain and wind in Philadelphia and then the crazy conditions for that Cowboys-Patriots game, that's on the positive. On the negative, you have kickers and... The fact that kickers are as important as they are is a perpetual source of frustration for me, Matt. I watched (laughs) Panthers kicker Joey Sly, who had already missed two extra points, miss a 28-yard field goal right in the middle of the field. And instead, the Saints come down the field and their kicker makes it. I got to tell you, this isn't even my one big takeaway, Matt, but I got to tell you, It is, in my mind, a serious flaw in the game. I hate, and I mean that, I hate it, that these guys run into each other and put their you-know-whats, their butts on the line for 60 minutes, and then ultimately it comes down to the end where their high school soccer player made it and your high school (laughs) soccer player missed it, and that's why they won and you lost. That is a way of phrasing it that I have not heard, but makes all the sense for a dude who was banged and bruised and probably broken a time or two, Ross Tucker, and then you watch the kickers come in and daintily decide your fate. I understand. Curious, do you have more respect for punters who are an extension of the defense? No, not really. <laughs> uh, but, I, but I will say this. I don't have as much of a beef with punters because I don't feel like the game very often comes down to them. I just think so often at every level, but especially in the NFL, you have all of this back and forth and you have all of these great games. And then it just comes down to whether or not a guy that does something that has nothing to do with the rest. I mean, the sport is about, Blocking, tackling, running, catching. And it's like, it's insane to me. It, it would be like at the end of a basketball game. It's 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 a close game. Like, And now we are going to bring in the 12th guy on the bench to see if he can kick in a free throw. And the guy yeah. like tries to kick a ball into the free throw. I mean, it's just, it's uh, crazy to me. Absolutely crazy. But before I get on to the really serious thing and my biggest takeaway from yesterday, what are your thoughts, Matt, on what I think is a 
I'm not going to say a fatal flaw, but a flaw in the game that so many of them, and you're in Chicago. You should know this the last couple of years as much as anyone, that the game ends so often with a guy that not only doesn't look like any other guys that participate in the other 59 minutes of the game, he does, he's not even doing something that's what the other guys were doing the whole time. Yeah, no, I understand. I, I'm surprised, actually, in your earlier rant that you gave credit to the guys who throw it and who catch it even because, I mean, they don't bang like, like you did, you, you big, tough lineman types. Um, but, yeah, in terms of the kicker, no, I understand. And, look, they've only made it more important by the lengthening of the extra point. There was a stretch yesterday where the Bears went for two after a touchdown. They got it, but there was a penalty, so it came back. They kicked that extra point. There was another penalty. They came back and missed that extra point. So they they flagged themselves away from two points, let alone one. And, uh, no, I understand. But if anything, that combined with the growing trust of the analytics should lead teams to go for it more often on fourth down, especially at that funky part of the field. You're at the 35, just go. Even if it's four, five, or six yards, go. Because you can't depend on most of these guys. I don't see a way that the rules or the scoring is going to change that um, that 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 incorrect prioritization of who's the most important guy on the field that you're talking about. It's going to have to be through game theory and practice from the coaches involved. So as for the thing that bothers me the most yeah, about the NFL right now, and my biggest takeaway, Matt, from yesterday, mm-hmm. let's move on to the Cowboys Patriots game. Now, Matt, I don't have a horse in the race. I don't really care who wins that game, but I'm home watching that game yesterday and I see not one, but two absolutely phantom, no way, no how tripping calls against the Dallas Cowboys. Now, let me preface this, okay, Matt. As a player, you are taught to never leave it in the officials' hands. You are taught to play so well that one bad official's call doesn't ruin the game for you. I hate when you're on talk radio on a Monday and everybody just wants to call and bitch about the officiating and that that's why their team lost the game and they got a raw deal and they got screwed and all that stuff. I'm not into any of that. I'm really not, Matt. I I think it's usually just a crutch. It's usually just an excuse. And it's usually just something everybody can agree on. But I got to tell you, Matt, after my family and my friends, football is like my next love. And truth be told, I even love it more than some of my friends, if I'm being honest. Okay, (laughs) It's time. I do. I do. When I see... What I've seen this year, and I'm not talking about bad officiating. I'm not even talking about the replay review, the Sean Payton rule, which ironically went against Sean Payton yesterday, which is a whole other topic. What I am talking about are the phantom flags 
that are being thrown for fouls that are not there. Matt, I can handle, I can tolerate if they let them play. I can tolerate a tug here or a pull there, and they don't call offensive holding or defensive holding or whatever. What I cannot and will not accept is when they throw a flag for a foul that is nothing of the sort. They're literally making it up. What happened, Matt, that we got to this point? Is it Commissioner Roger Goodell? Is it Alberto Riveron? Is it his boss? What are we doing that we are making up penalties now? Number one, it stops the game. Nobody wants more penalties. Nobody Mm -hmm. wants additional stoppages. Nobody wants a longer game because of that. Number two, we are in the age of the proliferation of sports betting and gambling. And when you let them go, you let it play, it's like, okay, they're letting them play. When you throw the flag, when it's an absolute phantom call, you really call into question the integrity of the entire event. I could give two shits if the Dallas Cowboys won that game. I don't care. What I care about is them throwing the flag and literally making up bullshit calls. I don't know how we got here, Matt, but there was one in the Sunday night game. They called illegal hands to the face on Kevin King. Yes. And Collinsworth's like, yeah, I, I guess it was in there somewhere. No. No, it was not. They literally throw a flag, stop the game, and hurt a team for new, no gosh darn reason. And I hate it, Matt. I hate it. I understand, uh, Ross. There's multiple factors here, one of which to me is that humans are going to screw up no matter what we do, no matter how good the technology gets, no matter how much we tweak specific rules. What is a pick, by the way? I don't know. Until they call it, it's not a pick. And then they call it and you're like, okay, yeah, I guess that was a pick uh, for a wide receiver running around, let alone a hold and a catch and all of that. So you've got that. But now we also have this elevated level of technology and dissection that has made the refs super self-aware and fearful of missing something because they'll get called on it. But if anything, that that should make them not want to call these phantom things, but it seems to have gone in the other direction sometimes. And it, it is incredibly frustrating. And I believe you when you say you don't care whether the Cowboys won. It's not sour grapes. It's about the quality of watchability and the integrity of the game. And I don't think you mean anybody's cheating. It's just please don't affect my sport as much as you are. I'll tell you what was incredibly egregious and pretty frightening to me yesterday, Ross, and I don't know how the the viewers and listeners feel, but maybe one of the best and most important hires in our field of broadcasting over the last 15 years or so was Mike Pereira at Fox. Really good at his job, opened the floodgates for all of these other referee analysts and now every football broadcast at just about every college or pro level has one but mike Pereira yesterday 
made excuses for those tripping calls, at least the second one that you're talking about. And I could not believe that he was doing that. And I, I, I don't think that he is in the pocket of, of friends or the league or refs, because that has not been his MO in the past. I think if he was honestly saying that he empathized with the thought process of these refs that called that tripping penalty, then we've got a massive, massive problem because these guys should not feel comfortable calling something that they think they saw and and, and Pereira backing them up slash making excuses for them was really, really troubling to me. Yeah, I mean the first one I he didn't see. The second one it was he he thought Frederick lifted his leg. That was actually the opposite of tripping. Tripping would be if you leave your leg there and the uh-huh. guy falls over it. Having your power base, your foot's off the ground and the guy pushes through you and your legs off the ground, that is not tripping. And it makes me sick. It really does. My overarching point would be this, Matt, and I Mm want to get your thoughts, and I'll even present the counter-argument, okay? But if someone made me commissioner of the NFL, which would probably be a great idea and the whole world would be a better place, okay? Well, the whole world, not just the game. commissioner of the NFL, my number one job, the first thing I would do is I would get all the officials into a room or on a conference call and say, hey, listen, fellas, let me just tell you something. Nobody came to watch you. If you see a foul and you're sure you see a foul, by all means, throw the flag. Throw the flag. But if you don't see a foul or you're not sure you see it, when in doubt, don't throw the flag. We are okay with, from time to time, you letting the guys play and maybe a foul should have been thrown there, but okay. We are not okay with you literally making up penalties. We are going to err on the side of when in doubt, don't throw the flag. Sometimes, Matt, I feel like they've been told the opposite. It feels that way sometimes. Did you see where Brady threw the ball out of bounds on the last play? And the ball was like still in the air. And all of a sudden the clock just stopped with one second left Uh rather than like it going out. After the game, they show Belichick going up to Garrett and shaking his hand. They show the players talking. Next thing you know, they show Brady. And he is talking to the officials. And he was either learning and trying to understand why the second didn't go off. Or he was pissed. The guy just won a big game. They're 10-1. and one. He's uh-huh. the best football player of all time. The best quarterback of all time. And what's he doing after the game? He's either pissed off because the second should have gone off or he's trying to understand why it didn't go off, try to get a little bit better. I tweeted this at Ross Tucker NFL. That is why he's the GOAT. Well, how about this, Ross? I love that, that he is still completely plugged in 
as the seconds are ticking off and trying to either learn from it, make it a teachable moment, or teach the ref, hey, don't do that to me again. I know what I'm doing and I know the rules. So one or the other, he's that plugged in. Let's put that next to Dwayne Haskins, shall we? With what he does in the final seconds in Washington, taking a selfie with fans after he had been a part of a win, good for you, but he's not even around as the clock winds down and Case Keenum has to go out there on the field and get in victory formation because Haskins is ready to celebrate and move on when you're a rookie. You've done nothing, nothing. And you want an example of why you don't do that? Look at the goat, look at the goat. Ross Tucker just told you what the goat does. The goat pays attention all the way through to the end and tries to control things, manipulate things, learn from things to set up the next game and the next game and the next year. And the next year, it's why he's still playing. What is he, 53? Dwayne Haskins, you're 11 years old. Stay plugged in for the whole game. That's It's a really low bar. I think it's a really low bar and the least that Redskins fans should expect. So, Matt, I gotta, I gotta tell you, I feel like you could go either way. With the Haskins thing, you could say, ah, he's a young kid. He was excited. That's hard for me to do. Like, I understand that, but I've never seen that happen before. I've never seen that happen to a guy before. I've never seen a guy. And it wasn't just that he was preoccupied and didn't go out there for the kneel down. It was that he was literally, rather than even walking across the field or celebrating with teammates or saying good game to Jeff Driscoll, he's Uh. doing a selfie with a fan. I mean, maybe I'm just old and it's a millennial thing or whatever, Generation X or whatever the hell a 21-year-old is. (laughs) But I got to tell you, Matt, I think that's pretty concerning. I think you're going to get out, Coach, when you come to uh, the, the, during this era, when you come into uh, uh, New England. I do. I think you are. And uh, I give him his uh, uh, not do there, but it's just what you're dealing with. But my point is, don't get yourself in a spot to where you have to come up here and beat him and beat them and beat them uh, on a day like today. The special teams issue, do you think that's more of an execution thing or a coaching thing? I know you talked about Jason's, but what about the special teams coaching? To me, special teams is 100% coaching. It's 100% coaching. How, strategy, it's uh, having players ready. Uh, They use the makeup of the roster. We exclude certain players from it because we—they're too important in the defense and offensive phase of it. But uh, other than that, special teams, and that's why today uh, give uh, Belichick and give them credit. They did a great job on special teams, and that was really probably the determining difference. But uh, special teams is nothing but coaching. I believe special teams is effort. Special teams is savvy. Special teams is thinking. Anybody that can play on a position on offense or defense ought to be a great special teams player. There shouldn't be anybody on our roster that's not a good special teams player. That is the voice, of course, of one Jerry Jones. And we are joined now by Kevin Hagelin from 105.3, the fan in Dallas. 
And Kevin, I guess I'll just start with your reaction to what you just heard from Jerry Jones. He's on your station every week, I think multiple times a week. You've heard him for years. Translate that. Put that through the, the, the Jerry Jones translator. Yeah, in fact, he's on with the KNC Masterpiece every single Friday on one of those fantastic 105.3 The Fan shows. But what he just said was, this is Jason Garrett's fault. I'm just going to cut right to the chase. This is Jason Garrett's fault. In fact, I want you guys to indulge me for just a second because I'm a little irritated with y'all that you picked this time because right now on 105.3 The Fan, you're going to have to go to the Radio.com Rewind app. uh, Jason Garrett is on. So what I want you to do is I'm going to throw out what I think Jason Garrett is saying at this exact second, and then when we send y'all the audio, put me to the test and see if I get it. Fair? Fair. All right. He's going to say something like on that fourth and seven, well, I think if you look at what the basic tenets and numbers of football would tell you to do, we did the right thing. And if you look at the way the game played out, we did the right thing. And that's going to be his takeaway. Because they got the ball back, they did the right thing kicking that field goal. And to your other point about the special teams, look, Jerry Jones is 100% right. And a lot of the Cowboys fan base is excited this morning. I know that sounds weird because they just lost. But they're excited because they think that Jerry Jones is finally holding Jason Garrett's feet to the flame for some stuff that they think he should have held him to the fire a long time ago. Hey, Kevin, um, from the outside, from the perspective of, say, I don't know, a guy who's lived in Chicago and covered the Bears for a couple of decades. Here's what I think of Jerry Jones. And I think Jerry Jones is a rich, rich man who's never known as much about football as he thinks he does, who uh, pushed Jimmy Johnson out of Dallas and has since allowed himself and his children to pick the groceries and run the team and all of that. Like, I, I, I find myself with a pretty low level of respect for Jerry Jones's football acumen. It sounds like right now you or maybe the town is believing more in Jerry Jones than you are Jason Garrett, though. So is that a product of me not understanding what Jerry Jones really brings to the table or just a desire to move on from Jason Garrett? I think, you know, that's an interesting question. I think it's a product of understanding what can change and what cannot change, if if that makes sense to you. Like, you cannot respect... You cannot respect Jerry Jones football acumen all you like. And, uh, you know, I'm not particularly here to mount a (laughs) vigorous counterattack to that. But it's not going to change. Like, he's not going to stop owning the team. And he is not going to stop being the de facto GM of the team. However, what can change is you can change your head coach. And so I think that's why people make a run at uh, Jason Garrett more than Jerry Jones. I think people, you know, in the last 10 to 15 years just kind of came to accept whether you like it or you don't like it, learn to love it because that's the way it's going to be with Jerry Jones. With Jason Garrett, though, you feel as though this is the pivot year where if they don't make a run in the playoffs, which I believe means making it to at least the NFC Championship game, then he's out. And that's why I think you hear so much directed at him as opposed to people going, well, Jerry's pretty good at being a GM because I don't think it's that. All right, Matt, I know from our last show together, you are a big baseball guy. So I, you're only on with me once this week. I wanted to finish the show with getting your thoughts on the entire Astros cheating scandal. This is enormous 
Ross. This is, it's bigger than steroids in terms of what is going to happen to one team. With steroids, we damaged the conversation about the record book. We damaged the expectations and uh, damaged the relationship and trust that people had with certain players. This is damaging the trust that we have with front offices, with managers now, with A.J. Hinch and Carlos Beltran and Alex Cora being discussed, and with analytics themselves. I have literally said the words several times over the last couple of years as I've looked at the Astros' stats and how they have had the most strikeouts as a pitching staff of anybody and the fewest strikeouts as an offense of anybody. And the disparity between those two has been historic. I have said the words out loud into a microphone. What are the Astros doing? And how can the Cubs copy it? How can other teams copy it? Other than just going to get some of their guys. Well, now we know what they were doing. And it reduces my belief and my trust in some incredibly smart people in that front office, in their methodology, in the ability of George Springer and Alex Bregman, truly great players who have gotten incredibly better in terms of making contact. It's reduced my trust there. And it has reduced my belief in any amount of success from that team and then makes you look around and start to question other teams and other players. It's incredibly damaging. And there are ripple effects that have affected every organization in, in, in the game, frankly, because if they were stealing signs, here's an example. If they were stealing signs versus you Darvish in that 2017 World Series, he then signs a free agent deal in Chicago and his psyche, and he's a sensitive man, was so screwed up by the fact that he thought he was tipping pitches to the Astros in that World Series it was a factor in why his 2017 blew up and he was awful, sometimes injured, sometimes challenged. That Astros sign stealing was a factor in how that year went. And because Darvish was so bad, the Cubs were damaged in the middle of their winning window. Then they had to go spend money on Cole Hamels, 25 million in that year. Then they had to pick up the option for Cole Hamels because they didn't know what they were going to get from Darvish. That damaged their ability to sign a big money free agent last year. And on and on it goes. The domino effect of cheating to define success or not within the games and the playoffs is huge. I think the Astros are staring down the barrel of the most he heavy and damaging penalty that MLB has ever levied on a single team. I think they're going to get absolutely hammered by Rob Manfred. Hey everybody, it's Ross Tucker. Thanks for listening to the Home and Home Podcast. Remember, you can watch or listen live every day from 8 to 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time exclusively on the Radio.com app or on the web at Radio.com slash home. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 